All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is October 19th, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Tonight's class is going to be a continuation of the series that we've been having on the history of U.S. imperialism. Uh, this class is going to be on the end of the Cold War, so we'll be looking at the period roughly between about 1975 and 1990. Uh, just a few reminders before we get into the class, though. The People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies is a PCUSA-initiated and sponsored school, but it is not the party school, which is great because it allows a wide variety of different perspectives and opinions, which don't necessarily reflect party line, but there are plenty of party comrades here that can give you a clue as to what we think about these things. But with that out of the way, we'll go ahead and start the presentation. So history of U.S. imperialism, end of the Cold War. What we're going to be learning about today is American interventions in West Asia, Latin America, Africa, and other international events during the late 1970s and into the 1980s. Uh, it's mainly looking into these areas because that's where the main interventions were happening in these regions of the world. Uh, and we're also going to be looking at domestic events in the Reagan era, including changes in economics and decline in anti-war organizing. Um, but we are going to discuss some important anti-war organizing from the time now. And we'll get started with our first section, which is interventions in West Asia. Interventions in West Asia. U.S. intervention in the Soviet-Afghan War, Operation Cyclone. In 1979, under the Carter administration, the Central Intelligence Agency began Operation Cyclone, a program to aid and arm the Afghan Mujahideen under Gulbuddin Hekmatyar um, via Pakistan's Zia al-Haq. Um, against the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan to topple both the socialist government and to deuce a Soviet intervention. British MI6, the Pakistani Interest Services Intelligence, and the Saudi General Intelligence Presidency were also involved. Zbigniew Brzezinski, the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter, said that it would give, quote, the USSR's Vietnam. Funding began at $695,000 in 1979, but rose nearly 1,000% by 1987 to $630 million. FIM-92 Stinger surface-to-air missiles were a notable armament sent to the insurgency. In December of 1979, after the request of, to intervene by the DRA, the Soviet Union launched a military intervention in Afghanistan against the Afghan Mujahideen. Afghanistan's Washington Secret War by Philip Benoski. In tense situations where the United States is suspected of uglier designs, there is always a question whether recipients of AIDS can afford the association. But with or without justification, they are often already denounced as CIA puppets. Offering open subsidy could hardly cause them more damage. There is no reason to keep Americans' ideological preferences in the closet like a shaming secret. The New York Times, March 23rd, 1982. Hardly had word arrived in Washington that the Soviets had entered Afghanistan in December 1979 than Brzezinski leaped to the microphone and told Zia that the U.S. was ready to offer him every kind of aid, including, quote, the use of force, if he felt needed it. Carter, more cautious, promised that the direct, quote, direct military assistance to those rebels might be possible later, end quote. But in the meantime, he wanted to, quote, build an chorus of international criticism of the Soviet move, end quote, New York Times, December 29th, 1979. 
Under that was done, Carter had moved with a circumspection in sending arms to counter-revolutionaries in Afghanistan via Pakistan. So all references to such aid had to be a roundabout, and in February, Harold Brown, the Secretary of Defense, made exactly the kind of roundabout preference um, that seemed to carry out the words of the popular song, quote, your lips say no, no, but your eyes say yes to me. In Washington Defense, Secretary Harold Brown acknowledged that February 27th, 1980, that rebels in Afghanistan might be receiving arms supplied to Pakistan by the United States, but said that it is the Soviet involvement that causes death and turmoil. In March, the Washington Post would come up with, quote, the United States is reported to have provided some covert aid, including weapons to the rebels after the Soviet intervention in December. U.S. officials will not speak publicly of the effort and had declined to do so in talks with reporters yesterday, March 21st, 1980. Drew Middleton, always described as having a direct pipeline into the inner recesses of the Pentagon, would write in July 1980, sources in the Pentagon say that the United States is providing arms to the insurgents on a limited basis. This seems to mean enough arms to keep the insurgents fighting in the field, but not enough to provoke the Soviet retaliation against Pakistan, across whose frontiers U.S. weapons could move to Afghanistan. White House officials said in February 15, 1980, that the United States had begun an operation to supply the insurgents with light infantry weapons, presumably rifles, light machine guns, and grenades. The CIA, a White House source said, had been assigned to carry out the covert mission. Zia had made no bones about the fact that he wanted weapons from the USA, but he linked to such assistance to the economic assistance in general, always denying out of the other side of his mouth that any American weapons given to him would end up in the hands of the Afghan counter-revolutionaries. The mercenaries had already appeared on the scene and was testified to by various reporters. In March, Tyler Marshall was noted from Islamabad that Government authorities are said to be preparing to deport British and American mercenaries drawn to the guerrilla war in Afghanistan by the lure and of money and adventure. Peshawar is headquarters of the major Afghan guerrilla groups fighting inside Afghanistan. That the mercenaries were there became widely known only late last week as the three of them found their way into the U.S. Embassy Club here and boasted to foreign journalists the plans to sell their services to the guerrillas and, quote, kill Russians. From London, at about the same time, the novelist James Aldridge would write, quote, A while ago, the British press was full of very proud stories about a handful of mercenaries who had arrived in Pakistan to cross over into Afghanistan, where they said they wanted to, quote, kill Russians. There were, in fact, two such separate groups of mercenaries that they had to set up with their headquarters in Pakistan's north frontier province of Peshawar. The first group was all British under the leadership of a man called David Tompkins, who had already fought as a mercenary in Angola under British mercenary Colonel Kalan, who was executed by the Angola authorities in 1970. The second group is headed by an American called Eugene Shipley, but two of his lieutenants are British mercenaries named John Pilgrim and Hugh Morrison. They claim to have 72 fellow mercenaries ready and waiting, and Pilgrim told the reporters in Islamabad that though he didn't get much money out of his profession, he did it because he, quote, hated communism. In December 1980, the Philadelphia Inquirer had run a story describing how trucks arriving at Peshawar on their way to the Afghan border are stopped by the Pakistani police there who, alter checking their license plate number against the number in their notebook, waved them on with no attempt to see what the trucks were carrying. They were carrying arms to Afghanistan counter-revolutionaries. In any case, 
quite early in the game, it was an open secret that the United States was secretly arming the counter-revolutionaries in Afghanistan. In April 1980, Carter was still hemming and hawing about admitting what everyone knew, including Reagan, who had already publicly declared during the presidential campaign that American arms were reaching the rebels. I don't think, said Carter, responding to Reagan, that this is so, but wouldn't dismiss the idea out of hand. But one year later, in March 1981, Reagan, now in the White House, had dropped all the coy disavowals appearing on ABC TV. President Reagan said in a television interview that if Afghan insurgents fighting Soviet forces asked for weapons, he would consider complying with his request. The cat, which had already been out of the bag by then, was now officially out of the bag. Later that year, Michael Kaufman would report from Peshawar that no longer the due representatives of the various factions engage in diatribes about the need of the Western governments to support their struggle with arms and money. Instead, they are doing quite well. And they proved it. He, a diplomat, said the Mujahideen, or the Islamic warriors, had learned to use the new weapons that were both those were captured from Soviet-supported stocks and those acquired from foreign supporters. They are bringing down some helicopters in the cities. They are using very sophisticated techniques, said the diplomat who did not want that, quoted by name, New York Times, August 31st, 1981. To bring down a helicopter, you must have a very sophisticated arms indeed, which cannot be bought in the local bazaars on the black market. There's only one country in the world that can supply weapons to bring down helicopters copters, and not miss them. As for the sophisticated techniques employed in cities, these include knowing how to use the poison pellets and gas bombs against gadgets not to be picked up on every street corner, nor the skill to apply them, acquired by reading on how to book one rainy weekend. Iran, Revolution and Hostage Crisis Also in 1979, the U.S.-backed monarchic government of Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, or the Shah, um, which had been in power since the 1953 U.S.-backed coup that ousted Mossadegh, was overthrown in a revolution by Ayatollah Khomeini. U.S. control in Iran was ended when the Shah was flown to the U.S. for cancer treatment in October of 1979. A group of students from the Muslim students' followers of Imam's line stormed the U.S. embassy in Tehran and held hostage all of its staff. They wanted the Shah in exchange for the hostages so he could face trial for execution of his brutal reign in Iran. Hostages were held for 444 days, and the crisis ended with the Algiers Accords on January 19, 1981. The hostages returned to American custody the same day as Ronald Reagan's first inauguration. Carter was deemed weakest by imperialists for not having performed a larger military intervention to save them despite a failed rescue attempt in Operation Equal Claw in 1980. Iran would be an issue for the imperialists into the Reagan administration as the Iran-Iraq war began. The United States began aiding both sides covertly. U.S. companies shipped strains of anthrax and insecticides to Iraq under Saddam Hussein. As for Iran, presidential administration of Ronald Reagan facilitated the secret arms sales to Iran, money from which would be used to fund the counter-revolutionary militants in Nicaragua, the Contras. Confession from a CIA agent who survived a wrecking plane crash in 1986 revealed that this scandal to the world and it would become the Iran-Contra affair, and it rocked the Reagan administration. Yet only one person involved with the affair was ever imprisoned. Some participants, such as Elliot Abrams, would go on to be involved in the George W. Bush administration about 15 to 20 years later. Others, such as Oliver North, continued in such places such as the National Rifleman's Association or becoming commentators on right-wing media. Ronald Reagan first told the nation it wasn't true. Then he said, my heart tells me it's true, but the facts and the evidence say otherwise. And managed to avoid any accountability, despite North saying he knew of what went on. George H.W. Bush denied involvement. 
but it was later revealed from his diary that he was, quote, one of the few people that fully knew the details, end quote. Other interventions in West Asia. 1980, Turkey. 43rd government of Turkey overthrown by the right-wing military of Turkey, backed by the CIA. Military junta in Turkey lasted until 1983. The Kurdish language was banned. All political organizations were banned, and the Kurdish-Turkish conflict escalated. 1982 to 1984, Lebanon. The U.S. set up a multinational peacekeeping force in Lebanon with the U.K., France, and Italy as part of the ceasefire agreement brokered to end the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon. In 1983, barracks in Beirut hosting American and French soldiers were struck with a powerful explosion from the two-truck bombs, killing 241 Americans and 58 French. 1987 to 1988, Persian Gulf. During the Iran-Iraq War, the United States Navy made several attacks on Iranian naval forces for placing mines in international waters, including with Operation Praying Mantis, where several inoperable oil platforms and ships were struck and sank. This was the most major military escalation with Iran in this period. Throughout the 1980s, the U.S. gave about $3 billion in military aid to Israel annually, of which he was used against Lebanese forces in the 1982 Lebanon War and the, and the Palestinian resistance forces in the First Intifada. The Reagan administration issued public criticism of Israel for its usage of these weapons, but did not stop sending them arms and ammunition. All right, and we'll have our first round of questions and comments. In Nicaragua today, the socialists are back in power, but the Contras are still around. They just don't call themselves that anymore. and. I can't remember the current word they're using, but I know they use a lot of flowery, progressive, almost social democratic rhetoric. So just if you hear something in the news about pro-democracy, progressive, leftist opposition in Nicaragua, just remember that. Yes. Um, I wanted to say something about the slide on the Iranian revolution. Um so the picture there of the guy with the beard who was actually talking and to the large crowd, that's actually the picture of the current Supreme Leader, Said Ali Khamenei, who was basically Khomeini's right-hand man uh, and the first president of Iran after the constitute after they established the Islamic Republic. And then later on, he would go on after the war, Khomeini died, and he would go on to become the successor to Khomeini in 1989, and he's still the supreme leader to this day. So that's all I want to say. Okay. I just want to recommend there's a really good podcast series called Blowback. And right now they have a series on the Afghanistan war and really what led this American as well as this Shah and as well as there's really good evidence, they say, of... um. Chinese Maoists working together to kind of push the Communist Party of, of Afghanistan to get more radical uh, members to take over the party. Uh, it's very fascinating. I would really recommend that podcast. Um, and yeah, it really seemed like the Soviet Union was bogged down in Afghanistan war. Um, it really did seem like their, um, as the Western propaganda wanted to make it, their Vietnam which maybe led to the fall of the Soviet Union to some extent. That's all. Great. Yes, I uh, did say in that uh, article that like uh, George Bush Sr. knew all about Grand Contra. They get that right? Uh, yeah, I can answer that. Uh, there was a 
George H.W. Bush is vice president, I believe, wrote a personal diary. And a lot of those documents actually have to be submitted as presidential record after they're uh, after they get out of office. And so he never thought that his diary would actually have to be submitted. But in part of it, he said that he was one of the few people that knew fully the details of the Iran-Contra affair, which Reagan was as well. He made straight up decisions on it and knew the details, but managed to avoid accountability. And 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 this was a scandal that easily could have brought down the Reagan administration had he actually been held accountable for it. I mean, it was much worse than Watergate 10 years before. But, you know, at that point, he was able to avoid any accountability for it. And a lot of people like Elliot Abrams and some of the other people that are still around weren't held accountable either. Thank you. Uh, one thing to uh, keep in mind with Afghanistan, and I was talked about how it was uh, a poorly kept secret in 1980 that they were funding the rebels. Uh, Brzezinski himself admitted, I believe it was in the 90s, that they were funding him pre-Soviet intervention into Afghanistan. So they were funding him into the 70s. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, comrade General Secretary Angelo, you have a floor. Um, I don't know if you're going to talk about it, but you didn't mention Grenada. The island of Grenada, Maurice Bishop. I don't know. You're going to talk about that? Yes, it will be mentioned. Okay. So that also happened at this period. So it was one area after another. This is very important to understand. When the war ended in 1975 in Vietnam, most of the peace movement closed down. They viewed the Vietnam War as an aberration, a mistake. But the communists and other radicals, and I separate the communists from other radicals on the left, they saw what happened in Vietnam as a symptom of American imperialism, not as a mistake, not as an aberration. So we continued the peace movement here on Staten Island. And the John Reed Center has a lot of documents that I sent him on that period. So you see, it was one thing after another. It was 79, Nicaragua, South America. It was Rios Montt, a dictator in South America that the United States supported. They came to Staten Island. I remember there was a demonstration there at a fundamentalist church here. I mean, I remember all this stuff clearly. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And your wealth of experience in this is definitely uh, something we value when we talk about these things. Didn't Pakistan also commit 200,000 volunteers? I might be misremembering, but I remember the, the, the Pakistan army itself got involved at one point, supporting the Mujahideen. Yeah, I'm not sure about the specifics of that, but I wouldn't be surprised considering how involved they were with facilitating those arms sales to begin with. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, all around the world at this time, uh, different countries, there were socialist movements, they're very powerful. So we're, we already talked about Nicaragua, uh, you had like Ethiopia, the whole conflict in the south of Africa was going on, Namibia, uh, Mozambique, Rhodesia, everywhere, the whole world, it goes to show the power of the Soviet Union. And we know that the Women's Day was created the Soviet Union and all the socialist countries went to the UN and simply made Women's Day. So it was quite a time to be alive. Thank you, comrade. That's why this class is filled up because there was so much happening during this time period that, you know, we just got to skim over it. But we'll have a lot of classes about different aspects of this in the future. 
Yeah, on question, uh, yeah, Pakistan um, had a lot to do with the Mujahideen and especially the Taliban after the counter-revolution. Um, a lot of the Taliban were actually trained in madrasas in Pakistan. Those were religious schools where they had um, basically politically and even religiously illiterate teachers pushing um, you know, the this distorted version of Islam. Then you had uh, Saudi Arabia send over uh, Osama bin Laden, who introduced the Wahhabist, um, the Wahhabist movement to uh, Afghanistan. So those two were the were the biggest uh, financial and ideological supporters of the Taliban. Yeah, and just real quick before we go to the next section, I wanted to add just a bit on Osama bin Laden. So yeah, he originally was a Saudi construction heir, I believe, um, but he was trained and equipped by the United States during this war. And there's actually, I forget what magazine it was that ran this. It was one of the main U.S. bourgeois, or not magazine, newspapers that ran an article that was like, anti-Soviet warrior puts his forces on the road to, to peace or something like that. So there was a point in time where the U.S. was outright not just supporting the Mujahideen, but supporting Osama bin Laden. And we saw the blowback of that. We don't even have to go into what happened because of that later, but we will in the next uh, classes. Comrade General Secretary, and then we'll go to the next section. Yeah, we didn't mention Panama. I don't, we probably oh, didn't mention oh, Noriega. It's because the United States used all these dictators, Hussein in Iraq, Noriega in Panama, and others, uh, the one in uh, uh, Bin Laden. They used these people. They created them. Then when they didn't need them anymore against the Soviet Union, when they didn't need them anymore, they actually killed them off indirectly by turning against them. People should learn. They should have learned, but they didn't, that you work with American imperialism against the Soviet Union, you were basically ending your own life down the road. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Interventions in Latin America, overthrowing South America, Operation Condor after the 54 Paraguayan coup, the 64 Brazilian coup, the 71 Bolivian coup, the 73 Uruguayan and Chilean coups, and 1975, General Francisco Morales Bermudez of Peru overthrew the government of President Alvarado, and in 1976, Argentinian General Jorge Rafael Videla overthrew President Isabel Perón, who, by the way, was the first woman president of any country in history, and set up a military dictatorship over the country of Argentina. Yeah. Right-wing military juntas were installed that were sympathetic to the United States and would carry out murders and disappearances of thousands of suspected communists and other leftists. In November of 1975, Operation Condor was formally created and began to do this as a joint effort of those fascistic dictatorships. This program was carried out under the presidential administrations of Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan, and formally ended in 1989. And you can see on the right here uh, the countries that were involved in Operation Condor, including uh, the United States itself. U.S. intervention in Central America, the war on drugs and counter-revolution. In the late 1970s, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, the FSLN, 
took power in the Nicaraguan Revolution. The United States began training, equipping, and funding counter-revolutionary forces, Contras, against the Sandinistas in the Contra War. The United States also trained the El Salvadoran Army, which committed the El Mazote Massacre in 1981, the murder and rape of some 1,000 women, men, and children in the town of El Mazote, El Salvador. This is the worst massacre in the Americas in modern history, and was backed by the United States. Anti-drug operations were carried out covertly throughout Latin America, targeted at cocaine and cannabis mostly. Manuel Noriega was a CIA-supported drug trafficker who supported the Contra army for years until the Iran-Contra affair made Noriega a liability and allowed the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, to go after him on an indictment the CIA blocked them from pursuing years before. Panama was invaded by the United States to remove Manuel Noriega from power on December 20, 1989, in Operation Just Cause. The U.S. invasion of Granada, uh, Operation Urgent Fury, it was called. Two days after the barracks bombing in Beirut on October 20, 1983, the United States unexpectedly invaded the Caribbean island nation of Granada to topple its People's Revolutionary Government and expel Cuban and Soviet forces. Maurice Bishop had just been killed in a coup within his government six days earlier. The entire operation was bungled. 19 servicemen were killed and nine helicopters were destroyed. The U.S. sent 7,300 troops, four tanks, one LHA, one aircraft carrier, three destroyers, two frigates, one ammunition ship, 27 F-14A Tomcats, and 353 peacekeepers to face off against a mere 1,300 troops, eight APCs, two armored cars, 12 AA guns, and 784 Cubans, most of whom were construction workers. The only footage offered to the public was government footage depicting the success of American troops. To make matters worse, 18 civilians at a mental hospital were killed by the U.S. when it was bombed by the Navy, supposedly in an accident. And real quick, we'll just watch a clip from AP News. This is from the time when the U.S. invaded Grenada. And then I believe there will be another round of questions and comments. In the final hours of the battle for Grenada, the Americans were still pouring in more combat troops who arrived at the new airport one way following another. The build-up coincided with the arrival of helicopter gunships, all urgently needed reinforcements to end the fighting as quickly as possible. In the words of one American officer, they were using whatever it takes to free the island. But even as these men came ashore, the invasion forces were still facing intense fire from the last remaining Cuban strongholds in the hills surrounding the airport. For the first time, the Americans, who allowed only their own news teams in, showed how their heavy artillery was trying to pound the opposition forces into an early submission. Smoke-blackened skies marked the locations where the strongest resistance had been coming from. In addition, the Americans had been making repeated airstrikes to weaken the Cubans and to allow ground forces to take up better positions. With the battle for the capital St. George's over, the Americans turned their full attention to the south. 
the first accompanied excursions into the island by independent witnesses, uncovered what President Reagan feels has clearly justified military intervention in such a formidable way. A short ride with the Marines through rough terrain, and there was a group of Cubans being held prisoner by armed police units from Barbados. Earlier, at least 200 other Cubans were flown out to Barbados for repatriation. It's now believed that the Americans have captured at least 600 Cubans, with as possibly as many as a thousand others to come after the fighting. The numbers far exceed what President Reagan's intelligence advisers were saying before the invasion. But perhaps the biggest prize of all came when the Marines found what the President says is yet more clear evidence of Cuba's occupation plans for Grenada. Russian and Cuban ammunition was found, as well as communications equipment. It was all there in such quantities that the Americans believed this to be the makings of a full-scale military base. These are the weapons which Mr. Reagan says turned a friendly island paradise into a Soviet Cuban colony, being readied to export terror and undermine democracy. American civilians still on Grenada have been talking for the first time. Many of them witnessed the fighting. Their safety was of paramount importance to the president, who was mindful of the possibility of a hostage situation like in Iran. We saw planes coming in, going out. We saw the battleships. Uh, Radio Free Grenada that was, uh, we think, bombed on, exploded three or four times. We were told afterwards it was an ammunition uh, site that they had blown up. The Holiday Inn was, was burned down while we were watching last night. A uh, good part of it. I don't know how much of it. Grenadians, too, have been venturing out into new surroundings. Their Marxist revolutionary council on the island has been destroyed. Meanwhile, most Caribbean states will be thankful that Grenada may soon return to the fold. Brent Sadler, News at One in the Caribbean. All right, with that, we'll go to our next round of questions and comments. Those Americans that they were interviewing in Grenada, were those the college students? Do you know that? Because I think there was something that had to do with college students. Was that them? Yeah, I would assume that. I'm not sure entirely, but I remember that there were American students that were on the island um, that would probably be the ones right there that they're interviewing. And that was one of the things is, of course, you, you had the Iran hostage situation years earlier. Uh, the Reagan administration thought that the world would see it the same way as the Carter administration if something happened with those students, which, of course, was just as imperialist thinking. But yeah, I wanted to go ahead and give that response. Was there a reason why they waited to intervene in Granada until after Maurice Bishop died? Thank you. I don't know if there was a reason that they waited until after Maurice Bishop died. I don't know to what extent that played into the timing of the invasion. If one of the comrades has any information on that, feel free to answer. On that, I don't know if they waited till he died to launch the invasion, but they did use his death as a sort of local propaganda tool in Granada because um, the man who killed him, while obviously nowhere near as bad as the U.S. military, was much less popular than he was. And in a book by Fidel Castro titled Nothing can stop the march of history. He goes into more detail in that. Thank you for that, comrade. Yes. Um, if you don't know that my mom is actually from the country Panama, 
And I need to ask her about what was, what, where was she during the invasion? Because I don't know, but my biological father wished he was there. And I was like, ah, so, but yeah, Panama has deep history with USA that's pretty long and bloody with horrible things that happened. Yeah, I just wanted to expand on that a little bit, um, just to remind comrades some of the stuff from other classes that we learned to keep in mind when we think about Panama. Of course, we annexed part of it early in the 1900s for the Panama Canal Zone. We blasted across a continent, actually. It was a skinny part of it, but we blasted across a continent to build that canal, which, you know, for as necessary as shipping as it was, um, we basically stole from the Panamanians for years until we gave it back to them, but under the agreement that we would still basically control it. Um, and of course, you know, we propped up this guy, Manuel Noriega. Uh, he was a drug trafficker. The DEA wanted to get him in the 1970s, I believe, like 1971. And the CIA told them, no, he's our guy. You you got to leave him alone for now. But then when the plane crashed in Nicaragua and unveiled the Iran-Contra affair, it implicated Noriega and they couldn't use a liability at that point. The DEA could go right after him. So, yeah, I just wanted to expand on that kind of history with with the United States and, and Panama. It's, it's really brutal. Yeah, thank you. Kind of a thing that I've kind of thinking about when you're talking about uh, South America's involvement in South America. And then I was thinking about Afghanistan as well, when basically the socialists were taken over by the Muhammad regime and whatnot, opium became popular again. It was pretty much outlawed under the socialists, and then opium became the biggest commodity. And I just find that interesting, you know, as today we're legalizing drugs, maybe I'm going in a different rabbit hole, but I think it's kind of interesting that America has used drugs to kind of take over countries, and we're kind of seeing the legalization of drugs today. I don't know if anyone wants to comment about it. just kind of an observation I'm making, but that's all. What would the, uh, like, the plane crash you mentioned that I mentioned? Yeah, so it was a plane crash that happened in Nicaragua, I believe. It was a CIA agent that was on a reconnaissance plane. I don't remember if it was shot down or if it had some sort of engine failure, and that's how it crashed. But it crashed in Nicaragua, and of course he was captured and confessed basically to the whole affair that was going on. And at that point, it was revealed to the world. So, yeah, I, I forget what his name was, but it can easily be looked up. It was a CIA agent. It was in 1985 or 86, I think. Just a quick comment to uh, question. The drugs having to be sold on the black market made it very easy for the CIA to funnel money for the uh, various right-wing groups, where if they were everything was on paper, it would have been a lot harder for them to do. Just a thought. Thank you. So if you look at the, inter back also on question, if you look at the tw last 20 years of invasion in Afghanistan, one of the presidents that the U.S. propped up with the puppet government was a guy called Hamid Karzai. And his brother actually was like a drug lord in Afghanistan. And he got caught up in like a whole drug trafficking ring situation. So just goes to show that like, you know, even the this, the guys who have ties to the U.S. and are basically part of the occupation 
also come out of the drug trafficking world and have ties to the drug trafficking world. And then the Taliban banned poppy production or something recently. So, but I think uh, the drug business, uh, th there is uh, there is data that most of the money in American banks and London banks, ninety percent of it actually is based on drugs. It's not industrial production, or or it's not uh, uh, revenue generated from uh, the two important sectors of uh, a national economy, industrial and agricultural. So I think if they legalize it, it does not mean nothing, you know, uh, because most of the money in the banks in the United States is, is drug related anyway. So, so that's not a big deal. But when it comes to American aggression against democracy, even the people like uh, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, who was basically a religious person, were assassinated in this country. So I think the the policy of the ruling classes and uh, tiny uh, ruling class in this country who want global hegemony right now is loud and clear. They are not even democratic. They are totalitarian and uh, they, comparatively speaking, I don't think they are any better than Hitler and Mussolini. Uh, I just wanted to add on to that, that the pharmaceutical industry is the biggest industry in the U.S., so you can imagine how big the illegal uh, drug industry is. Yeah, that's it. All right, and then I just wanted to give uh, two things real quick. One, just an observation when it comes to, you know, the era that we were intervening in Afghanistan and we had our own puppet government between 2001 and 2021. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that that's when the heroin epidemic, and especially the fentanyl epidemic in the United States, really blasted off. Uh, my dad actually died in 2016 in the midst of that. And I remember people trying to manufacture consent, saying it was China and that China was making fentanyl and using it to fire or, or to wage war on the United States without firing a shot. And, you know, it's just funny because it, it, it happened during this whole era when we were in Afghanistan. I think it's really similar to what happened with crack in the 1980s and them using it to weaken the working class. But then I also just wanted to go ahead and give more information on that person that was shot down in Nicaragua. It was a United States Marine named Eugene H. Hassenfuss that flew weapon shipments to the Contras in Nicaragua on behalf of the U.S. government. He was the sole survivor after his plane was shot down in 86, and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison for terrorism and other charges, but pardoned him released the same year. And yeah, when he was giving statements to the Sandinista government, it resulted in the Iran-Contra affair being revealed to the world, um, which was a big deal at the time. I mean, you, you take all of these things that were happening, all the, these imperialist manifestations in the world, you know, both in West Asia and Latin America, and find out that they're actually connected. Um, it, it, and then it's a wonder that anybody actually made it out of that without any accountability. It shows you that imperialists can do whatever they want and walk away from it. But, you know, Putin gets called a criminal by the ICC. Figure that one out. Um, uh, so what was it? Was uh, the guy shot down with the CIA agent or uh, as well as a Marine or both or what? Uh, it seems that he was a Marine. I I remember in the Untold History of the U.S. series, they said it was a CIA agent. Um, 
I don't know to what extent he was involved with the CIA, but he was definitely involved in a covert operation. Yeah, again, uh, I was involved with that whole movement, the reaction. Let me explain to you, give you the background. There was a medical school, a U.S. medical school in Grenada. My brother, talk about irony, went to that school. And so I also had family reaction to what was going on. It's interesting. They used, the United States used the excuse of what happened in Grenada, that their citizens were there. What happened in Grenada? This should, everybody here should understand. Maurice Bishop had a revolutionary movement. He overthrew the pro-Western puppet government that was in Grenada. Within Maurice Bishop's movement, it was called the New Jewel, you know, the jewel you put on, New Jewel Movement. What happened was that there was an ultra-left within that party, within that movement, led by someone named Bernard Cohen, Cord, and his wife. They killed Maurice Bishop. They were the ones. They did the same thing in Afghanistan the same time. 90 seconds. Taraki. Mohammed Taraki led rebellion against the Shah and the ultra-left within that party in Afghanistan uh, overthrew him and killed Taraki. Once that happened, they gave ammunition for the United States. So they used the excuse in Grenada of the American who were, they were not harmed, that the American students were hostages. Where have you heard recently that you use the excuse of hostages in order to go in and kill innocent people? Where did you see that in the last three or four days? Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Another thing that I wanted to add to the um, Asia uh, segment before we moved on was you have a very long uh, history of uh, U.S. Uh, piracy, uh, literal taking of ships uh, at the Strait of, um, not, not Strait. Right. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, so I wanted to bring up two things real quick. So the first is Noriega, right before he got taken out by the U.S., he went on TV and he had like a machete and everything. And he was saying like, George Bush, if you're going to come for me, come for me. And they actually did. So don't underestimate them, even though they're in another country, they're going to do it. But the second thing is, um, you know, the situation in Mexico right now is partly or wholly due to the United States military interventions in Central America in the 70s and 80s, because after those conflicts ended, they just sold those guns to the cartels. Like the cartels were killing people already and, you know, doing all this crazy stuff, but they did not have access to military grade weapons like they did after these conflicts in Central America. When the Contras were smashed, all of those weapons went north into Mexico. And we see the effects of this now. 70,000 dead in the last couple of like years, decades even. So just terrible. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to add to Comrade Angelo's comments about Granada um, in the sense that, like, you know, he mentioned that there was a ultra leftist within the revolutionary organization that had established the proletarian dictatorship. Um, and that was that internal contradiction is what ultimately 
led to the military decisions that led to the loss of the proletarian dictatorship and reverting Granada back to a, a banana republic. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. Yes, comrade. So Granada is in 1983, right? So look, the year 1983 is crazy. First, in Africa, Western Africa, we got Thomas Sankara, Marxist-Leninist, takes power in, uh, I think, in August of 83. Okay, very important. Uh, and then in the Philippines, you got uh, Nino Aquino. He was in the U.S. and he landed to Manila for, um, he came back to Manila. He was a leftist type. And they opened the door of the plane. He gets killed right there on TV, okay? Not long after this, that's like in August. Not long after this, you got the Korean plane uh, that uh, with a U.S. senator, an asshole senator in there. And uh, he's flying over uh, uh, the eastern part of Siberia. And um, the Soviets thought he was a spy. They shut it down. With all the people aboard, right? Big deal. Reagan went crazy. And then we got the U.S. Marines bombing in Beirut in October. Okay, where you got like 200 more Marines get killed in the bombing. Okay, during the uh, Lebanese civil war thing, you know, when Israel in 90 seconds and there was a, a multinational force and they bombed the U.S. Marine and the French paratroopers. And uh, two days later, the U.S. invades Granada because they got pissed. Reagan got pissed about this. He had to find the scapegoat and he invades Granada. I mean, it was this summer and, and fall of 83 with events, worldwide events. That's all. Come on. Thank you, comrade. And just briefly, you know, I want to add just the context that after Vietnam, there wasn't like a big war, a big, um, you know, military conflict that, you, that the U.S. was directly committing until about 1983, until the invasion of Grenada, uh, and then later in the decade, the invasion of Panama. And these are kind of the events that are a prelude to American unipolarity and all of that unleashed aggression after 1991. And, you know, the entire United States, the imperialists were like having this this guilt from having lost Vietnam. And you, you'll often hear this even from conservatives in the United States and, and the, especially the neoconservatives of the whole lost cause myth about Vietnam. Oh, we were right around the corner. And because of that, they go ahead. And that's part of the reason why they take their aggression out on all these other countries around the world. We've got time for one more comment before we go to the last section. And I'll probably just combine the last two sections for time. I just kind of wanted to sort of highlight the role of drug trafficking and that type of stuff that started with like the Golden Triangle over in Asia around the Vietnam War. You have the Iran-Contra situation, the drug trap in Afghanistan. You've got the poppy fields out in Afghanistan even to this day. So that is something that I think is essentially used to fund the CIA's operations and, you know, needs probably some further study by us. Thank you, comrade. So we can go to the next section. Interventions in Africa and other international events. Interventions in Africa. South African apartheid. From 1948 to 1944, South Africans were subject to a system of institutionalized racist segregation. South Africa was dominated socially, politically, and economically by the minority white population. The economic and social effects persist to this day through inequality. The Population Registration Act of 1950 
characterize citizens into different racial groups. As a result, 3.5 million Black Africans were forced into segregated neighborhoods. Marriage between people of different ethnic groups was prohibited. Resistance groups, such as the African National Congress, ANC, received violent suppression. Nelson Mandela, a leader of the ANC, was imprisoned. The Suppression of Communism Act, 1950, banned all communist parties, and the act defined communism and its aims so sweepingly that anyone opposing government policy risked being labeled a communist. South African apartheid continued. These practices were condemned internationally as the UN voted for international and economic sanctions and arms embargo against South Africa. Soviet Union showed support for the anti-apartheid movement by aiding the ANC through military training. Upon being released from prison in 1990, Nelson Mandela was awarded the Lenin International Peace Prize by the Soviet Union. The U.S. maintained friendly relations with the National Party due to their anti-communist ideals and to maintain economic ties, particularly because of the U.S. steel industry's reliance on South African mineral exports. Despite condemning apartheid, The U.S. continued to block sanctions against South Africa at the U.N. in the 1960s and the 1970s. The U.S. increased trade with the apartheid regime and provided diplomatic support in international forums while describing the ANC as a terrorist organization. Similarly, Margaret Thatcher of the U.K. also vetoed U.N. economic sanctions. The Angolan Civil War, 1975-2002 After Angola gained independence from the Portuguese, civil war erupted between two previously anti-colonial guerrilla movements, the Communist People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola, MPLA, and the anti-communist National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, UNITA. This created the perfect grounds for a proxy war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Cuba and the Soviet Union provided training and aid to the MPLA, allowing them to win the initial phase of fighting and establish the Angolan government. However, UNITA, funded by the U.S. and South Africa, continued fighting the government until 2002. By the time the war ended, between 500,000 and 800,000 people perished and much of Angola's infrastructure was destroyed. The Bombing of Libya In 1986, the U.S. carried out airstrikes in Libya, codenamed Operation El Dorado Canyon. Forty Libyan citizens were killed and one U.S. plane was shot down. This was in retaliation to the bombing of a discotheque in West Berlin that claimed the lives of three people. President Reagan blamed the attack on Libyan agents of Muammar Gaddafi. This was the first attack on the mainland of Libya by the U.S. after many years of conflict over Libyan territorial claims to the Gulf of Sidra. Reagan saw Libya as a high priority, as Gaddafi was anti-Israel and supported Palestine and Syria. There were also reports that Libya was attempting to become a nuclear power. Gaddafi also aimed to start a federation of Arab and Muslim states in North Africa, contrary to U.S. interests. The Strategic Arms Limitation Talks Limiting Nuclear Weapons In November 1969, the U.S. and Soviet Union began bilateral conferences which led to international treaties. The focus of the discussions was on arms control. The first negotiations, SALT I, led to the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. This was a limitation on ABMs, which are used to defend against ballistic missile nuclear weapons. This was intended to reduce pressures to build more nuclear weapons. Held from 1972 to 1979, 
SALT-2 sought to curtail the manufacture of strategic nuclear weapons. It also bans new missile programs. Though an agreement was reached, the U.S. Senate chose not to ratify the treaty in response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which took place later that year. The Soviet Union did not ratify it either. The agreement expired on December 31st, 1985, and was not renewed, although both sides continued to respect it. The Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI. In March 1983, Reagan called upon American scientists and engineers to develop a system that would render nuclear weapons obsolete, also known as the Star Wars program. The SDI was a proposed missile defense system intended to protect the U.S. from strategic nuclear weapon attacks. A wide array of advanced weapon concepts, including lasers, particle beam weapons, and ground and space-based missile systems were studied, along with various computer systems that would be needed to control a system consisting of hundreds of combat centers and satellites spanning the entire globe. By 1987, the American Physical Society concluded that the proposed technologies were decades away from being ready for use, and at least another decade of research was required to know whether such a system was even possible. The SDI's budget was cut after this finding. The effort was refocused on using small orbiting missiles, which was expected to be much less expensive to develop and deploy. The End of the Cold War Counter-Revolution in the USSR Throughout the 1980s, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was going through an intense political crisis brought about by the efforts at liberalization of the USSR by Mikhail Gorbachev with Glasnost and Perestroika. This, of course, began the turn of events that would lead, in December of 1991, to the dissolution of the USSR by counter-revolutionary Yeltsinite forces. This was a purposeful surrendering to U.S. imperialism. For four and a half decades, the USSR was the bulwark in the world against U.S. imperialism, and now it was shattered into several fledgling republics that would all develop differently into the new century, some coming under the control of Western imperialism hard, like Ukraine, others sticking by Russia, like Belarus. These differences would later erupt into several conflicts. This meant an age of American unipolarity had begun and the United States would act more recklessly around the world to extend its empire and imperialize smaller nations. The remaining socialist states would be pressured to succumb to Western market pressures, and all five would react in different ways. Great. And with that, we'll stop for another round of uh, questions and comments. Um, we mentioned uh, South Africa and the apartheid state, um, and we also mentioned the legislation. I think it was passed in like 1960, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, for the anti-communist law um so there was the uh what was it called the a p the a and c and then there was the split the pac which was i think the pan-african congress uh which was quite literally like a like a maoist split from the a and c they were not banned is my understanding under that anti-communist law um and uh you know nelson mandela was jailed they accused him of causing some violent, um, like, protests, um, which was not true. Uh, there was no evidence to support that, but they jailed him anyway on those accords. But I guess the point is they let the Maoists stay in, and it was very helpful for the arguably, yeah, fascist apartheid state. You know, they banned communists. So it's just something to think about, like, 30 years that apartheid state went on. 
there was no communist movement because it was banned. Uh, but there were Maoists, um, and they allowed lots of conflicts to happen and fester in South Africa. That's all. Right. Thank you, comrade. I think one uh, one of the fundamental questions I have uh, from a vantage point of uh, proletarian internationalism is that uh, a significant portion of Americans have uh, civilians you know, joining the army for the most part have played very, very destructive roles throughout the post-World War. So I think our party must uh, intensify its political works, you know, to dissuade uh, those pure Americans, poor Americans who join the army to make money, college tuition and stuff like that. So I think uh, the level of consciousness must be raised because uh, many Americans have participated in these uh, satanic wars, uh, which can be verified. So that's my suggestion. Thank you, comrade. Oh, yeah. Did you say like uh, the U.S. sent about $3 billion of military aid to Israel during the 80s or was that per year or what? I believe it was annually during the 80s. Um, it was... Comrades should remember the 1960s ended with the 1967 war, of course, with Israel. And, and there wasn't really another big conflict over there until the Israeli invasion of Lebanon with the 1982 uh, Lebanon war. And so at that point, you know, we were still backing Israel um, and we kept sending them these arms sales. And then when they would use them in the Israeli uh invasion of lebanon offensively where they would use them in the against the palestinians in the first intifada the ronald reagan administration would basically give them a smack on the wrist and say don't use these offensively they're for defensive use but of course as we understand um, we never stopped arming israel uh, we never decreased the amount of military aid that we would give them so it was really finger wagging from the reagan administration at the time i hope that answered your question yeah, when this class was presented, my observation of the time, it should not have included that the 1980s were a bad year. It was a big year for the peace movement, big time. We had a big rally. I was involved myself in getting buses from Staten Island to go to Central Park. We had one million people in Central Park against nuclear weapons. One million people that was telling the administration in Washington, get the money out of nuclear weapons. We don't want it. It's dangerous. There was a big movie called The Day After, which you all should get a hold of, showing what would happen if there was a nuclear war in the United States. So it was definitely not a period of low. Uh, there was a period when they tried to put a nuclear-powered ship in New York Harbor, nuclear-powered base, and we fought it. The 80s were more active, actually, than the 70s. Those of us who were involved can tell you that. The 80s were more active than the 70s. We had German Democratic Republic, East German peace representatives come to New York City and come to Staten Island. We didn't have that in the 70s. Okay? So the peace movement was basically anti-U.S., objectively anti-U.S. imperialist because it was attacking the nuclear weapons. 90 seconds. And the ones that had most of them was the United States and the Soviet Union. We also uh, were pushing 
the fact that the Soviets were calling for peace offensives and reducing nuclear weapons while the United States was not. So contrary to the perception that the 80s were a low, they were not. They were increased. Thank you. Yeah, a couple things. You know, it was interesting in the presentation, by the way, uh, it was mentioned patriotism was a reason for a lack of a war movement. Uh, arguably, it's a propaganda against patriotism. The, the truth about American patriotism is it's anti-war. Our country was even isolationist. Yeah, it was imperialist. Uh, but our country, basically, they, what I understand the anti-war movement was that we are the real Americans. And, for example, Colin Powell is not a real American, George Bush. But anyways, going back to the presentation, my comment for the night, and it was all the way back from the last discussion, Comrade was talking about uh, Mexico and, you know, the narcos. So comrades understand narcos in Mexico is the same as Daesh in Syria or Azov in Ukraine. It's all the same uh group it's all funded by the united states it's united states um political power to destabilize and it goes into what we were talking about earlier as well about the drug trade like in afghanistan so the heroin trade began with the french in indochina because it's all from indochina which is you know the whole region of southeast asia and there's still a lot of production there but uh Comrades can look this up. The CIA ran the biggest airline in the world during the Vietnam War, and there was a war of equal scale. Ninety seconds in Laos, and it's called the Secret War, and it was funded by this drug trade. But the confusion, and not here at this class, but the confusion among a lot in the United States is that the CIA runs drugs for money. That's not the truth, comrades. Our country, the United States, sends in drugs and sends in arms and destabilizes countries not for money. It's to keep people weak. It's to keep them in chaos. This is the plan of the United States. And two minutes. Thank you, comrade. And just real quick. Yeah, the, I should have put like a faux patriotism or, or a sense of American nationalism was what demobilized some people in the 1980s. It wasn't real patriotism, but uh, comrades may know that when Ronald Reagan got elected, uh, his big campaign slogan was morning in America. It was all these big uh, nationalistic themes about how great American was and God bless America without actually getting into any of the great things that we had done in history, like the American Revolution or the Civil War or whatever. Um, it was sort of a Cold War response to the patriotism of before during like the greatest generation where we actually had something to be proud of. With that, it was, oh, we're proud that we've fought communism in the world and it spread our empire across all these different uh, borders and boundaries. So you're right in saying that um, it wasn't wasn't our form of patriotism that caused this in the 1980s. It was a it was a form of American nationalism from Reagan. Did uh, say the CIA had the largest air force or the largest airlines? The airlines. So it was a private airline. So okay. all of Southeast Asia is rainforest, and there are these little towns, and there are mountains, and what they grew at the time what the United States moved from Southeast Asia, that our country moved it to Afghanistan during the occupation, uh, is the production of poppies, of heroin. And their mountains are grown in the mountains. And the, you know you cut them with the knife to get the resin. And that's how they produced heroin. And uh, it's actually a right-wing guy, a conservative. He's actually a Mormon. But he's he really was an anti-war activist. And they made the movie um, Rambo based off him. Uh, I forget his name, but he was a Green Beret. And the reason all this came to light is because he was searching for 
captured prisoners of war who were still there like 10, 15 years. They were still there, like in Laos and in Vietnam. It was never talked about. And so he went there to go get them. And what he uncovered was this giant drug operation is kind of the east area of Thailand and Malaysia. It's kind of like a warlord area where there's not much control and the western part of like Laos and North Cambodia. And there's actually a guy who ran the heroin trade there. 90 the seconds. Uh, but yeah, the, the CIA, then our country, we moved it to Afghanistan. And as mentioned, our country has left Afghanistan. However, the Taliban, for all the, their goodness, they are involved in the drug trade comrades. They are. And uh, the United States has really moved a lot, as the comrade said, to South America. That's where it's moved to. Colombia, Mexico. Uh, but it's still there in Afghanistan. It's still there in Eastern Asia. But it's mainly Afghanistan still. But Two minutes. All over the world now. Right. Thank you, comrade. So I was a little surprised when they just put in that uh, Cuba. They said Soviet Union, Cuba gave aid, uh, you know, uh, against South Africa. Uh, it, it wasn't just aid. Cuba sent 50,000 troops, combat troops, to uh, Southwest Africa, it was called the colony of uh, South Africa. And they met the uh, crack troops of the South African army and gave them a bad beating. Uh, and these were the best of the best of South African uh, uh, troops. And that was that led, of course, to the South Africa giving up the uh, colony of Southwest Africa, which I believe Namibia. Then they said they were going to go into South Africa. And that alone uh, led South Africa to start uh, negotiating with the ANC and, you know, freeing Mandela. And uh, they realized the writing was on the wall. And that great battle and the defeat of the South African army by the Cuban troops was basically the downfall of uh, the South African apartheid machine. Great. Thank you, comrade. Um, yeah, if I remember correctly, this is in regards to the Angola War. The Chinese government did not back the MPLA. They backed uh, UNITA. Is that correct? Am I remembering that correctly? That is correct. Yes, and uh, just to expand on that, there were a couple of different areas in which China actually uh, propped up the same forces as, as, as the West during this time. In Afghanistan, they had pledged some sort of support to the Afghan Mujahideen, um, and they've been supporting different insurgent forces in Afghanistan since then. And oh, I forget the other one that they were involved in, but yeah, China during this time was a bit of a mixed bag, and I'll let... Comrade General Secretary, add anything they want to on that. Yeah, China under Mao Zedong was under ultra-left influence. Remember, the first thing they did in China, this is a fact, is they created the Red Guards, young people. Who was the first thing the Red Guards did? I don't know if you know this. They closed down the YCL. That's interesting. The party leadership that carried the revolution in '49. Lu Xiaoxi, among others, were attacked by the Red Guards. So this was not a communist thing. The ultra-left makes you want to think it was, but it was 90 not. seconds. It was basically anti-communist. Whatever they did during the Maoist period was anti-communist. Remember, while the communists in the World Peace Council, the big movement that was started by the Soviet Union in 1945, they were marching against nuclear weapons. And what was the view of Mao Zedong? You should look at the quote. We're not afraid of nuclear war. Let it happen. 
Can you believe such a statement? Two we minutes. have so many people that we will, when the war ends, we will come out on top. What about the nuclear winter? None of that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And before we go to the next section, I remembered something else I wanted to bring up. Didn't make its way into the uh, presentation, but it's important to bring up. So there wasn't a whole lot of things talked about that went on in Europe, but something I feel is important to uh, know about is we did military drills in Europe in the 1980s, big, big military drills, uh, one of which was called Able Archer 83. And it was actually a military drill that the Soviet Union had no clue about. We had not warned them. And we basically prepared Europe for a nuclear war, for World War Three. Uh, got everything in position and tested it out. And, of course, the Soviet Union's reacting to this, got themselves in a, in a battle-ready uh, state. And then, of course, back down and went, oh, it's just a test. You know, everybody go home. And it, that was one of the things that almost caused a, an accidental um, nuclear conflict, even in the 1980s. And we kept Pershing II missiles in Germany throughout the 1980s. My mom went over for six months in 85. And that was why, was because a lot of the U.S. military was in Europe in the midst of this sort of Cold War, you know, diplomatic escalation. Um, so I just wanted to add that in there. I think uh, the, the NATO countries, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States, uh, uh, monopoly capitalists and imperialists, they're, they're like neo-colonies. I mean, we used to think African countries and uh, Asian countries or South American countries were colonies, but it's not true anymore. I think the NATO member states are basically colonial states of uh, the United States of America. That is, that is my observation, and it can also be empirically verified because they don't have, they do not make decisions vis-a-vis -vis Russia or China and uh, other uh, burning international issues. So they are very subservient. They take orders from Washington. So what makes those countries independent countries? They are not really. They are totally under the control. They take orders from Washington D.C. That's it. So with that, we'll go ahead and go to our final section for tonight, which is the domestic events in the Reagan era. Domestic events, the Reagan era. Free trade and deindustrialization. The surge of free trade policies in the 1980s, viewed through an anti-imperialist lens, is a deliberate strategy by dominant global powers to exploit the resources and labor of developing nations leading to the dismantling of local industries. The subsequent deindustrialization widened the economic gap between the global north and the global south, perpetuating a cycle of dependency on Western economies and reinforcing the dominance of these global powers over weaker nations. Moreover, the rise of free trade in the 1980s consolidated economic and political control over developing countries, mandating the privatization of state-owned industries and the liberalization of markets, allowing multinational corporations to exploit resources and labor without being held accountable. This entrenched a global economic order that perpetuated the dominance of powerful Western nations, deepening the divide between the wealthy few and the impoverished masses and fueling resentment and resistance among the anti-imperialist movements worldwide. 
Reaganomics. The economic policies championed by President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s prioritized tax cuts, reduced social spending, and deregulation. Despite initially sparking economic growth, its lasting impact on the working class was damaging. The approach widened income inequality, diminished vital social services, and failed to offer substantial support to working class Americans. Deregulation also weakened labor rights, leaving workers more vulnerable to exploitation and unstable job conditions. As a result, Reaganomics perpetuated socioeconomic disparities and eroded the economic security of the working class. Trickle-down economics posited that tax cuts for the wealthy would ultimately benefit everyone through an increased investment in job creation. However, this approach ultimately failed to significantly improve the economic prospects of the working class, as the benefits primarily accrued to the top income earners, exacerbating income inequality and leaving many individuals without substantial financial improvements. Losing American Jobs The Reagan era saw a significant shutdown of domestic factories and production as companies sought to reduce costs by relocating abroad. This trend led to widespread job losses and a decline in the availability of a stable employment opportunities for the working class. As manufacturing and production shifted overseas, many communities reliant on these industries experienced economic devastation, contributing to a rise in unemployment and subsequent decrease in the standard of living. Furthermore, the outsourcing of jobs exacerbated the precarious situation for the working class, as the remaining employed opportunities often lower wages and reduced benefits. With the loss of well-paying manufacturing jobs, many workers were forced to settle for positions in the service sector, which typically provided less financial security and fewer opportunities for upward mobility. This shift in employment dynamics further deepened the economic struggles faced by the working class, contributing to a sense of economic insecurity and stagnation that continued to impact communities long after the Reagan era. Anti-imperialism in the 1980s, decline in the anti-war movement. Anti-war organizing in the United States diminished during the 1980s due to several factors, including the end of the Vietnam War, the effect of McCarthyism and COINTELPRO, and a shift in public focus towards domestic economic concerns. The fading memory of the Vietnam War, coupled with the Reagan administration's emphasis on a strong defense stance against the Soviet Union, led to decrease in public mobilization against military interventions in conflicts. Additionally, the prevailing sense of patriotism and the perception of a heightened external threat dampened the momentum of the anti-war movement during this period. Amidst this context, the Bomb Freeze Campaign emerged as a prominent grassroots effort in the early 1980s, aiming to halt the further production and deployment of nuclear weapons by the United States and the Soviet Union. The campaign, driven by concerns over the escalation of the Cold War arms race, called for a mutual freeze on the development and deployment of nuclear weapons as a step towards disarmament. 
With widespread public support and the involvement of various peace and activist groups, the Bomb Freeze campaign gained substantial traction and highlighted the growing global concern regarding the dangers of nuclear proliferation, contributing to the eventual negotiations and agreements. State of U.S. Imperialism American Imperialism in 1990 The 1980s witnessed the significant rise of neoliberalism, political and economic ideology emphasizing the reduction of state intervention, deregulation, and the promotion of free market capitalism and increased intervention and interference abroad. Spearheaded by figures like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, this ideology gained traction globally, influencing policies that prioritize privatization, free trade, and reduce government spending, fundamentally reshaping economic systems and global trade relationships. By the 1990s, the United States had solidified its position as a dominant global power, with American imperialism manifesting through military interventions and diplomatic influence in various regions, particularly in the West Asia and Latin America. With the end of the Cold War, the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union, and the dissolution of other socialist states, the United States emerged as the sole superpower, starting a period of American unipolarity. This newfound dominance allowed the U.S. to exert its influence in global affairs, shaping international policies, trade agreements, and military interventions, thereby solidifying its position as the primary arbiter of global geopolitics. This series will be continued in the history of U.S. imperialism, rise of American unipolarity, covering from 1990 to 2005. All right. Thank you, comrade. And with that, we'll do our final round of questions and comments tonight. Hello. Uh, I think uh, my uh, personal observation is that uh, now the, the balance of forces uh, between North and South is very, uh, at a very heightened contradictory phase because uh, so many countries, including Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, those countries have joined, uh, I think, uh, the BRICS movement. It's a global movement to address poverty in the first place and to emphasize free trade, not free trade, fair trade. So the front runners of these policies are China and Russia right now. It's, uh, it's also joined by India and Brazil and South Africa. Those are the best countries. So I think industrial uh, uh, productivity, employment productivity in, uh, in, in European countries and North America is, is in fast decline. The standard of living is declining. And uh, I think they are really in bad shape. That's why they are creating uh, military tensions, political tensions here and there, but uh, they do not have the, uh, the economic backing because they are declining. And uh, productivity in those countries are, are getting lower and lower, and the GDP of the BRICS countries getting together is becoming a real challenge, and they have no way out. They are in big trouble. Great. Thank you, comrade. I just want to give a reminder real quick, though, that you know, we are going to have a class at the end of this series 
on what's going on in the present day. It'll probably be, you know, fall of American unipolarity as we have a multipolar world emerging. And we'll get into all the, um, you know, relationships between the United States and Europe and China and whatever. Um, but this class tonight is about uh, the end of the Cold War, uh, the period between uh, 1975 and 1990. So I just want to try to keep what we're talking about tonight on that period. Yes. Um, will we have a class on Panama? Just curious, as it relates to this. Uh, yeah, it's it's possible in the future. We did a class on the invasion of Iraq, so it's possible that something could uh, make a class for Panama, you know, relevant enough for us to do that. And there's going to be a lot of classes that come off of this series because uh, th this series is meant to be an outline for comrades, for them to understand the general uh, progression of imperialism over all these decades. Um, we're going to get into all of these things at some point, um, and then we'll be able to to really get into it. Um, but I wanted us to have a, a general idea of, of how um, imperialism changed over all these years, because in my textbooks when I was uh, uh, in high school, it always basically put American imperialism as this small era between like 1898 and the 1920s, and it doesn't exist anymore. Or they have these ideas that we weren't imperialists during World War II, or we weren't imperialists in the 60s or 70s. Um, and it's something that's continued ever since we started. We've been imperialists since at least 1898, if not before. So that's why we've been doing this series. Uh, I think one of the fundamental problems of this uh, unipolar world is that they have systematically destroyed the industrial proletariat. I think uh, Angelo knows about that stuff because the in industrial, uh, high industrial countries like uh, in Europe and North America, the core revolutionary uh, contingent is the proletariat. So they have really uh, done serious damages. Uh, to that uh, component of uh, uh, industrialized societies. So, but uh, basically, I think that classes at the same time is becoming politically aware because they are globally represented by WSTU, Women's Federation of Trade Unions. They are aware of what's going on and they are militants and uh, they are not totally dictated by the uh, NATO and North American corporations. That is very positive. That's why those uh, politicians attached to the corporations and imperialism are really in bad shape here in the United States and uh, Europe, Asia, Latin America, all those neo neo colonial states. So I think that uh, the, the future is not bad. The future is actually bright. Uh, as that's why. They are talking about nuclear war, regional war, and stuff like that. But if they go to a full-scale uh, nuclear war, they will be they, they are in bad shape. They will be exterminated too. You know, that is where they have to choose between cooperating with the rest of the planet or go to a nuclear war. Okay, which 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 is gonna eliminate all of them. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, uh, we've enjoyed the whole series. We went through the Cold War. I guess the discussion didn't really point it out, but I'll reiterate what I said on 
last week's class, last week we talked a lot about what you could call United States soft power or mercenaries, ISIS in Syria, Azov in Ukraine, Gulf cartel in Mexico, narcos. It's all the same. They're the United States. Uh, it was brought up at the last class about the drug trade. My comment at that class was that the drug trade it's not about making money for the United States. It's just about destroying society, whether it's in Mexico or Syria or Vietnam. It's just about destruction. So we know what the enemy is. It's NATO. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah, just another one in a great series on an important topic. I mean, this is this is it. You know, this is what we need to keep an eye on. And yeah, you're right. The the history has been totally obscured or, you know, we pretend it doesn't happen anymore. Just like the CIA just did some things in the 50s and 60s, but they're cool now. And the part about Ali North and Iran-Contra was, was really interesting as well, because I was a kid when all that stuff was coming out. And I remember it being in political ads on TV all the time, but I never really understood it. So thanks a lot. Thank you, comrade. And yeah, Oliver North is still around. A couple of years ago, he was the, forget what they call the head, the chair position, but he was the head of the NRA for a while until he stepped down and it, and it became somebody else. But but yeah, thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, you know, I think about uh, this stuff um, and, uh, you know, all the past transgressions the CIA and, uh, you know, the State Department has done. But, you know, the, the thing that, uh, you know, people seem to have a really short-term memory when it comes to this stuff because, uh, you know, the CIA is only required to release classified documents 20 years after the fact. So by then, everyone has kind of forgotten about it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I guess, a really good tactic for them, but a real shame for us. I uh wish in the future we could address that fact. Yeah. Um, Oliver North is actually still like a guest on Fox News. He They invite him on there. But um, regarding the fact about the CIA, what they also do is in the movies, when they do movies on this on historical context, for example, they made a movie about the Iranian revolution and the CIA's role in that and all that called uh, Argo basically just like they acknowledge that the cia does terrible things like overthrow democratically elected governments and meddle in other people's elections and then they make the cia seem like the good guys at the end of the day so that's also part of the problem but yeah thank you and really quickly i just wanted to add that reminded me in this era one of the most famous sort of what you would call not aged well moments was at the end of Rambo 3, I'm sure a lot of comrades here know that it ended with, this film is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. Uh, spoiler alert, that ending was changed after 2001. So I just wanted to add that. You know, very well said by, for those who aren't aware, there's a reporter, perhaps one of the few actual real news reporters talking about the CIA making up news, but named Glenn Greenwald, He's LGBT, but he lives in Brazil. And one of his big focuses, if you watch his stuff, is the anthrax attacks in the early 2000s. Maybe you comrades don't remember this. It happened right at the same time 
of the 2001, what we just talked about, the 9-11. And what was it? It was like this final little push to get the domestic audience in the United States to support this horrific thing that our country did. So everything that's going on, it's it's still going on right now. George W. Bush is getting carted out in a wheelchair to speak. Uh, Condoleezza Rice is talking. Uh, all these wicked humans are back. So it's our job to show that we're the real Americans and they aren't. Great. Thank you, comrade. And with that, we're at about time to go ahead and wrap up for tonight. So I want to thank you all for your different questions and comments tonight. Like I said on Tuesday, I think that this has been a really good series so far. It's really important. It's it's priceless for us as Americans to understand thoroughly the history of our country's imperialism. I mean, how do you understand the situation you're in today if you don't know how you got there? So this is something that, you know, we felt was really necessary at the People's School. And we've got about three more classes of it before we're done with this series. Stay tuned for that. That'll be over the next couple months. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.